Hey guys, I want to welcome you to another episode. Today, I've got a really special guest, somebody who I have grown to love in a short period of time, a man who I just experienced his integrity, his authenticity, and I want to inter introduce you to him. His name is Speed Weed. Besides having an awesome name, Speed is a Hollywood television writer and producer. He's written and worked on shows such as Law & Order SVU, uh, Arrow, and most recently, The Summer I Turned Pretty, which I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah, um, I see. I worked on Summer <laughs> I Turned So, I mean, just thanks for, thanks for coming on here. And we're going to talk about um, life and, and, and some of the things that you're working on and doing that really don't even include the stuff that you're doing in Hollywood, but something that you're, things that you're working on that are actually going much, much deeper than that. So I want to give you a chance to talk about that and um, give the guys that are tuning in this just to get a chance to know you and see your heart. So I appreciate you being here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Chuck. I love you, man. Yeah. Um, in the desert. I know. Um, connecting with Shasta. I met in John Mineland's program and friends since and uh yeah so when i was a young man in my high school and college days i was like a passionate embodied romantic actor i fucking memorized mm. romantic poetry and traveled around the world and had like a at least a self-vision as like a swashbuckling fully embodied human being and then something happened in my 20s where I put that all away and I kept a tether to creativity. I became a writer and I've been a writer my whole life, but I was very up in my head and it's as if I lost all reference to myself from the neck down. And I built a good career. I worked in Hollywood. I worked on the shows that you were talking about and some others. And a little over three years ago, I had a real I don't want to call it a breakdown. It was like a real moment of deep demoralization where I realized I couldn't keep living like this. And I found men's work. Uh, I found groups of men who, I should say, I found men's embodiment work, which mm -hmm. is its own special thing. There are men's groups where they sit around right. in chairs and just talk to each other all day. That wouldn't have worked for me because it would have sent me further up in my head. And so the combination of being in brotherhood with other men, which I didn't have in my life, I was, I was pretty lonely because my conception for 30 years of other men was that they were just competitive, uncreative, unavailable to their hearts. And if you really, really got down to it, selfish and mean. And in men's groups, I found that not to be the case at all. I was surrounded by guys like you, open-hearted spiritually minded, relaxed, beautiful men with a lot to say about the world with warmth and clarity and vision and trust and integrity. And so I got so hooked on it. I, you know, went into training and uh, took a really deep dive. And in addition to my Hollywood career, I now have a business offering men's work uh, in uh, a weekly embodiment circle. And I coach guys and I do a bunch of, bunch of other things. Uh, but I love it. It's changed my life. I've never gone back. And honestly, if uh, who's going to see this, if 10 years from now I'm done with Hollywood and I'm just working in this arena of embodiment and relational yoga, um, I think, I think that that'll feel good to me. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds just like the experience I've heard from a lot of men in doing these kind of works that there's just a similarity where we, we tend to be going after something in our lives, striving for something, whether it's success or freedom or whatever. And then there's that moment where we realize there that, that there's something more, there's something missing. And it sounds like you had that kind of experience for yourself. Was there anything specific that was going on or just kind of a general sense of feeling empty? Yeah, it it was a version that I've heard guys say so many times. In fact, almost every one of my coaching clients has some version of this line is I was doing it all right. I was doing everything I was supposed mm. to do. 
I climbed the ladder. I was nice to my wife. I, I am a good guy, uh, which often maps to nice guy, which is yeah. something I know, you know something about. And I'm miserable. I'm not happy. Uh, I don't even sense that people like me very much, despite all my efforts. And I don't know how to do any better. I don't. And uh, yeah, so I had that. We were talking before the call, you and I, about that notion of like a false top, like in hiking. Yeah. You are climbing the mountain and you're like, oh, yeah, I can see the light through the trees up there. I'm almost there. And you get there and it's a false top mm -hmm. because there's a whole other peak to go. So I, I reached a false top of like, I, I've gotten to what I thought was the top. But I am not happy. I don't like the view from here. I need something else. Yeah. Yeah. I can really relate to that myself. You know, I'm having that time in my life where I felt like I had built this house of cards you know, and it just all fell apart. And when that happened, I, I always say that that was one of the most painful experiences probably also one of the most beneficial experiences I've ever had in my life because it launched me into working on myself first and, and finding out what I needed to do in my life to be able to change my circumstances, but also like finding this work with other men and not just the being and working with them, but also kind of leading them, uh, that that's found a lot of gratification in that. And I know you've been, you've been leading a men's circle or well, like the last since January, right? Mm -hmm. How's that experience yeah. been for you? Oh, I love it. I, I, it, it centers my week in a lot of ways. In some ways it's like the, it's, uh, it's has a flavor in my life of being uh, just a very like small little thing, right? It's just, mm -hmm. it's sometimes like 12 guys and it's 108 minutes. That's the title of it. And it's just this little moment in time, but I love it. I love scripting the practice. I love watching guys get into their bodies and share from the heart. And uh, I, in some ways I've really organized my week around it. And oh, yeah. um yeah, I enjoy it. You've, you've come a couple of times. Oh yeah. I've come and I can tell, like you put a lot of effort into it. Not just, not just the, the, the thing itself, but like getting the message out to the guys that are on your list or on Instagram and stuff that you put a lot of thought and creativity, um, into the entire thing, that entire 108 minutes. So it's really high quality. Thank you. I appreciate that, that reflection. And you know what it does? It reminds me because most of the guys that I have on the circle, like you, have been in the work for a while. And I, there's a there's a gratification in that, right? Like I, yeah. I, I'm starting and I get guys who know what they're doing and they're like, we really like your circle. The intention of it, though, is to be a low bar to entry for men who don't know whether they want men's work or not. It's 20 bucks. It's 108 minutes. There's no commitment. Drop in. The circle is there every single week. Even when I can't be there, I bring in somebody more qualified than I am to teach it. And... So it's like, it's, it's a reminder because, you know, uh, last week we had two guys who'd never done this stuff before yeah. on the circle. And it reminds me of that moment of transformation that I never want to forget is I heard you use the phrase, and I know this to be true of you, working on yourself. Hmm. What I was doing before was contorting myself, like twisting myself into pretzels to be yeah. what I thought. Hollywood needed to be, or my wife needed me to be, or the opposite of what my parents wanted me to be, right? Like some version of that, that was always externally referenced and referenced to people who wanted something from me. Mm -hmm. And what we do in men's work is the opposite of both of those. It's internally referenced. What am I feeling in here? And we're doing it with other people who want nothing from us but just to make us better men. And that's a magic sauce that exists yeah. in good men's embodiment work that I don't know how to replace. I think, I think our systems need it. I think we were evolved to it. I think we had it until agriculture and the industrial revolution. And we're getting it back now through these kinds of things that you're creating and I'm creating and a lot of other people are out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what are... Was there a moment in which 
you felt yourself sort of break open, you know, that, that heart center. I mean, cause you were talking about him, it was feeling really contorted. Like what brought you out of that? Yes. I was on Amir Kaligi's embodied masculine drop-in men's embodiment circle. I modeled my circle on on his because it was so powerful to me. And we were put in a pinned partner practice over Zoom. And so I'm on Zoom and I've got a guy across from me that I've never met. I met him now. He's a friend. And uh, the exercise is one that I do in my circles pretty frequently. You just through your breath and through eye gazing, reveal your heart to the man in front of you. And he wants nothing from you. And just seeing this, his name's John, seeing John look at me, mm. a totally open front body, wanting nothing but to see what I had without judgment, without competition, I felt safe and I burst into tears and I cried for the whole 40 minutes of that practice and moved some deep grief, some deep shame, or I would say I accessed through grief, some shame and sense of unworthiness. When I closed the computer on that call, I'm like, I'm not going back. I'm, I'm here. I'm in, mm -hmm. I'm all in. Yeah. And how has this work shown up in other parts of your life? I know you've got three daughters. Um, yeah. Career in Hollywood. Has it impacted other places in your life besides just how you're feeling in your own body? It shows up necessarily every part of life. There's no way for, if you're doing it right, there's no way for it not to. Uh, the way that if before I was contorting myself to be what I thought other people wanted me to be or to, you know, be the good boy or get the prize or get the job or make the wife happy and all of that sort of stuff. I'm not in my ground at all. And now through practice and men's work and embodiment work and the time that I spend in nature and the whole suite of things that we call practice, much of the, I was going to say most, but I'll just say mm -hmm. much of the time I am grounded and centered and wide I'm on my throne. Mm. I know who I am without reference to other people. And almost all of the time, I know whether I'm grounded or not. Mm. This is an important distinction. Right? Before, I was not grounded and I didn't know I wasn't grounded. Now I'm mostly grounded. If I'm not, I'm aware I'm not grounded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great way to describe it. And, um, and I know how to get back to it. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. I, want to hear I was just, I, no, I was just going to say, I think that, that, that for me, well, one of the, the biggest practices besides sort of like opening my heart was also grounding myself and just kind of like getting solid just in my, in my presence, just in the way that I sit, you know, just, just to, to be in almost a continuous practice or consciousness of the awareness of I'm here present in this moment and I love what you said about like, you know, and I think a lot of us creative guys were this way where we're up here in our head and we're thinking about all of the possibilities and the what ifs and the could be's and the creating, you know, all this different stuff. And we fail to just be in the moment. Like that's right. It's just sort of like sucking the juices of the moment because, and I don't know how many times I've done this and I, I think if you can relate, but like, I've been on vacations before where I'm supposed to be, you know, relaxing and, and, and I'm so in my head that I miss like the beauty and the relaxation that actually happens during that time. So I don't know if that's something you deal with, but. It's the story of my life prior to this work, going back to when I was about 23 or 24. Prior to that, I was quite in a youthful way, very present. In those you know, nearly 30 years, I was up in my head all the time. And presence was very, very hard for me. And so to answer your question about how it shows up in other areas of my life, when I'm grounded, when I'm here, 
now in my body, there's a very natural way in which I know what needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done. And most of the time, very little needs to be done. Mm -hmm. I've heard John Wineland say once before I really felt it in my body, but now I do. The mature masculine does very little. You can think of like the silverback gorilla in the tribe just sitting there while all the motion takes place around him. Mm. It's a, it's, we're, we're social beings and there's an energetic around mature masculinity that just anchors everything. The masculine that goes and rapes and cuts down trees and pillages, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. That's the very immature masculine run amok. Yeah. And so to answer your question, prior to this work, I was always trying to fix things from my head. And it brought up an anxiety in other people, in my wife, my now my ex, mm -hmm. my children, and anybody that I worked with. And now it's as though the grounded stillness that I bring much of the time is like a, a bowl that people rest in. My kids feel safe with me. My relationship with them is radically different than it was. And I don't do much other than be present with them. And what they get from that, I have triplet 12-year-old girls, what they get from that is we're safe. My father doesn't think there's anything to fix. We're safe. If you're constantly transmitting to children busyness, they will hear something's wrong. I don't feel safe. My experience is that this work has allowed me to embody what feels more like a true nature of grounded stillness that allows other people a permission to be who they are as they are without trying to change anything. I love that. That is, that is just spot on. Um, I love that idea of like very little needs to be done and to just be able to kind of like sit in the presence of what's happening in the here and now. Like, I don't know. That just, that when hearing you say that brought a lot of like, that it was kind of a, a shift that I felt even was like, oh yeah, that's, I want more of that in my life. I want more of that ability to just kind of sit. Because when you're anxious and we're thinking and you're problem solving and you're trying to, you know, make sure this is taken care of and that's going on, it does. It brings up all of this anxiety inside of you and to just kind of realize like, you can just sit and be present with this and feel it. And, and, and other anything. people. And, and other and people. people. Yeah. I, if I may, I'd like to geek yeah. out a little more on Yeah. Because I love this stuff. I love you. Yeah, me too. So what we're here. One is... One is, um, for your viewers, uh, very little needs to be done does not mean pick up the remote and watch the TV and ignore people. Mm -hmm. yes. Presence, as Chuck, as you were saying, is required. Actually being here. And this, for me, is a heart-centered practice. It's really feeling from the heart out to the people in the room. And the other thing I wanted to say is that this has really shown up for me in a beautiful way in relationship. Uh, if I can be really open-hearted and still in relationship, and I'm in a romantic relationship, the phrase I like to use is open heart, no demand. If I can be present and still, and believe me, I don't get this right all the time <laughs> at all, but I can come back to it. Yeah. And when I do, there's, as with my kids, there's just permission and a safety that allows openness and radiance and mm -hmm. clarity and all sorts of beautiful things that I never thought possible before. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
Yeah. So what's it like having three triplets? I guess not three triplets, three girls that are triplets that are 12. Don't scare me there. I don't have kids. <laughs> um, the, I, I feel so lucky, Chuck, I, especially oh, because, especially because given how I was prior, they were nine when I found mm -hmm. this work, eight when I found this work, or 12 now. If I had had a boy, I would have been much more anxious. I would have been trying to fix him. I would have like telegraphed to him, like, uh, projecting all my shit onto him. And yeah. I did that with my girls, but much less. Mm -hmm. And there is a certain surrender that I experienced right from the beginning of like, I'm having kids the way nobody else I know is having kids. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And that, that forced humility definitely, uh, um, helped out. And now that I'm a single dad with three kids, half the time, I love that I really just get to be the space holder there. Yeah. They play with each other. They're the same age. They're all on the volleyball team. Um, and they're each their own child even though two are genetically identical and one is not and uh they are really good i will say they are the most responsive best mirrors to my internal system that they're, they're the canary in the coal mine is not quite the right metaphor but yeah they show me my depth or my level of depth sometimes faster than i can see it um, yeah, I mean, I, I can I'm sure you've had that experience. <laughs> I've had that experience. Yeah, my greatest teacher is my daughter. <laughs> mm, that's right. And uh, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's frustrating, but when you are able to hold that presence and that open heartedness and that groundedness and that like being with them, like my experience has often been like this. When my daughter's away, I miss her. And then when she's here, I don't take advantage of that. I, I'm, I'm oftentimes like in my head, like you were talking about, and instead of being in that present moment with her. So it's something I'm really working on, um, in my own work of being more present with just everything that's going on around me. And especially when I'm with her or especially when I'm with my wife and I don't do it perfectly either. Uh, it's so easy to just kind of jump back up in here and be thinking and ruminating and plotting and planning. Um, and then reminding myself to like, no, get back, get centered, feel, you know, feel the, feel my rootedness, feel my heart, feel my breath, feel the presence be in this moment. And I felt that on you in person, like you have a very beautiful, big, I hope you don't mind my saying like bear like warmth to you. Oh, and you. so when you're dropped in, like you settle the whole space down mm. and I have no doubt that that feels really good to them. Yeah. And it feels good to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll tell you the edge I'm working. I, I, I think I might've given you a yeah. little bit of a, like a generalistic answer. The edge I'm working is this. They're tweens, they're girls, and they are getting into that middle school place of mm. relating all the time. And so-and-so said this, and you told my best friend this, and you told him I had a crush on him and this sort of stuff. And being younger feminine beings, they care about relating all the time. They do not want to stop. And to them, it doesn't matter whether it's negative relating or positive relating. As a boy child, when I was a kid, if I got in a fight with someone at the age of 12, we'd fight it out and then we'd go to our corners. We wouldn't keep it up. There's a non-stopness to their, and right, they go to sixth grade, which is hard. And they're all in the same class in sixth grade because I live in a small town. And then they come home and they're still in sixth grade. Like they don't get yeah. the benefit of being in different ages or different classes or, you know, not seeing each other all day. So they bring sixth grade home with them. And so they're, they're squabbling, 
fighting, holding the tension of that all the time. And I'm trying to figure out, does something need to be done here or not? And how do I piece out what is generative for them? What do they need to do? And what is me being annoyed by the constant chatter? Mm-hmm. For my own practice, I need a certain amount of stillness and quiet. And they do not provide that in the house unless I enforce it. And so this is a something that I'm really trying to figure out now. What is healthiest for them? But if I figure it out from here, I'm lost. I have to like really feel into the moment, sure. feel with my my, you know, my belly floppy, as I like to say. Like, yeah. Um advice. You've had kids old kids are older than mine. Um what would you do? Well, you do have you have a uh an interesting dynamic of having three girls that are the same age. You know, like you said, I think people who typically have children, you know, there's there's an older, there's a middle, there's a younger. And so they're at different stages in their development and different stages in, you know, their likes, their dislikes. So to have three at one time, like that would be an interesting dynamic. I think somebody gave me some advice a long time ago when it came to teenagers and the advice was just keep the lines of communication open. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, that everything else, like all of the stuff that they're going through it's normal, it's natural, it's what they do. Our fear is that we're going to, um, that it's always going to be like this. Right. And, uh, and, and I've got, if it's always going to be like this and they're like this out in the world, then they're not going to know how to survive. And my job is to teach them that. So I think there's a part of us where we are teachers, that sort of masculine piece of ourselves. I, I often, I, I really like the four archetypes of the masculine, the, the, the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover, and, and trying to discern which one of those things needs to show up at any particular moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think the thing that we've been doing with the work with John Wineland and, and that is we are practicing being the container of the chaos. That's right. And so if you think about like just what you were saying about the silver bat, you know, He's up there watching this. He's just holding it, holding mm-hmm. space. And sometimes that feels like, well, there's, there must be more than just sitting here holding this space. But I think there's a powerful, a power in that, that they feel from you when they just know I'm safe. Dad's not going anywhere. I'm contained. All of this stuff is happening in you know, my sixth grade class, but at home, I know I'm solid. That feels really good. And thank you for that. You're, you're, you're a terrific coach. And so getting a little coaching on this call is a real bonus. Yeah. Um, Both parts of that. And I'm really going to lock in, keep, keep the lines of communication open, uh, because I do have one who tends toward avoidance. Mm-hmm. And I like that because it means that I get the quiet that I need. Uh, no. It's not good in the long run. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like we have to lean into that tension. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes I'll tell, I, I tell guys, you know, like, like women feel uh, attached with tension, you know, and that as men, we hate tension. Mm-hmm. And so we try to kill the tension. And when we kill the tension, we kill the attachment. That's right. That's right. And so, by the way, that works in romantic partnership too. Absolutely. In the, yeah. In, in the erotic way, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we do this in, in uh, you know, Lisa Lacroix and I offer an embodiment yeah. lab, which is a, uh, uh, an offering about how to relate from masculine and feminine polarity. And I have learned, and it's so against our programming. Right. We want to go in for the kiss. Mm. And if you actually don't collapse the space, but hold the tension of the space, yeah. if as a man, you can bring like desire without, mm-hmm. this is unsexy. This mm-hmm. is sexy. Yeah. I'm sending you tension, energetic, erotic tension. But I'm not collapsing, just like you say. So it works in the negative of a fight, yeah. but it also works erotically in, yep. uh, in, in, um, in love. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and so attachment and attraction are yep. both a thing that, that polarity will bring. And if mm -hmm. we're killing the tension, we're killing the attraction and the attachment. Um, and I think that's where most guys, you know, mess up in their, in their romantic relationships and their relationship with their kids even is the failure to hold the tension. That's right. That that's, that's the thing. One of the things that I love about the Kundalini yoga practices that we do and some of the work is that you're just holding space. Like if you're in that, you know, ego eradicator uh, or the iron shirt, you know, and you're just holding the space and it's like ongoing, you have no idea when it's going to end. And there's all of this tension building up inside of you, inside of your body, and you're trying to relax into it. You're trying to not let that let the tension just be part of a flow. Like that is great practice for those times when you're in that tension, whether it's, you know, in a conflict situation with a romantic partner or your kids or whatever, that that practice of just holding space comes from, I think that, you know, the, those moments where we're sitting, you know, quivering because our arms have been held out here for 15 minutes and uh, and trying to stay present and try to breathe through it. It's, it's great practice because that's the same thing. I think we have to bring in those situations with us. I personally don't know a way to do it. Prior yeah. to doing this work, I read a lot of books and I went to a lot of talk therapy and I did a mm -hmm. lot of, uh, you know, sitting meditation, all of which are good, mm -hmm. but they did nothing to get me in my body and to increase my nervous system capacity, which is what you're talking about. And it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. Practice, 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 practice. Yeah. No, I think that, that, and that is that nervous system of even like getting out of my head and into my body. As I tell guys all the time, it's like, you get it out of your head and into your body. What do you feel? What do you smell? What are you, you know, using your senses as a way to connect with the present moment? That that's for me, one of the most powerful things that I can do is just center myself Okay, here we go. You know, now it's the next thing. I'm I'm transitioning from my work day to being with my wife or, you know, hanging out with her. Um, I've got to bring my presence. I've got to bring my open-heartedness to her. I think <laughs> the other thing that can tend to happen is, you know, when you're a coach or a therapist and you're holding space for people all day long, that when you come out of that, the last thing you want to do is hold space for somebody sure. else. And I want to add two things to the the thing you were saying, if I might. Yeah. Because uh, there may be guys listening to this who who may need to hear this. I'm not sure. Mm. One is, hang on, I lost the second one. Maybe it wasn't meant to be. One is, and this is the one that I that I that I wanted to make sure I said, is I had a talk therapist focus in on this idea of what are you feeling? He could tell that I wasn't feeling, but he himself couldn't teach me how to feel. Having one other person say to you, what are you feeling right now? Didn't work for me. I may be on the remedial end of the spectrum. I, he even had me an index card and carry it around in my pocket that said, what are you feeling? And it didn't do any good. I needed other men in men's work to model it for me. And then I got it. It happened fairly quickly, but I couldn't do it on my own. And so if you have a sense that you are lost in your head and you don't know how to get down in your body, you're not broken, but you may need the extra help of really coming to men's embodiment work with other guys. And I can't remember what the second thing was. But. Okay. You know, it reminds me of a teaching that I often take because, because I think men, especially, you know, what are you feeling? And of course, you know, when you're in a romantic relationship, what she says to you all the time, well, what are you feeling right now? I want to know what you're feeling because women relate on that emotional level. I think for guys, what happens is we, it's not that we don't feel it's that we feel so much. So you can be feeling, um, Lonely, scared, angry, purposeless, bored, uh, 
atrophy all at the same time. And it becomes this cocktail of feeling. And often that cocktail kind of like, you know, when you mix a bunch of colors together and it all comes out in like this muddy color, it's the same thing when we have these emotions, it's, you know, I've got four or five different emotions. It's like four or five people trying to get through a turnstile at the same time and we get stuck. So when I say, well, what am I feeling? I don't know what I'm feeling. You know, I just know that I'm feeling right. this blah, right? Yep. And that's what I think the embodiment work does is it helps kind of like separate all of those pieces out so that you're like, oh, okay, this is what anger feels like. This is what sadness feels like. This is what joy feels like. And, and that's what I'm, I'm loving about the embodiment work is it gets you, like you said, out of your head and really feeling these things in your body. And then when you feel these things in your body, then you're more able to release them, let go of them, which then opens you up to more wisdom and knowledge to be able to know how to navigate in the situation. And so I, I could totally relate to that, you know, your, your situation with a therapist, you know, asking you, you know, what do you feel and not knowing that because I, that's the same way. I remember going, you know, when I started doing my own therapy work years ago, it was the same thing. Like my therapist was always like, well, so what do you feel right now? What do you feel right now? And I'm like, can't tell you. Well, and you're probably this way too, as a creative, in my case, I'm so good at having a very fast, good sounding answer. Mm -hmm. that when I was asked, what am I feeling? I, I really love your observation about like the, the complexity and the turnstile. And so therefore there's no access. Yeah. So I would just stick up in my head and give an answer that would make some sort of sense. Mm -hmm. And, and again, contorting to what I think the, the other person, you know, will sort of get me off the hook here. Right. I remember the other thing I wanted to say okay, great. is related to this is that living with those kinds of feelings that are unprocessed and unembodied or disconnected from the body, at least in, in our sense of awareness. I found intolerable. And so I turned to things like porn, alcohol, and doom scrolling the internet, all of which are ways of escaping those feelings, all of which are ways of just putting some distance between them so that I don't have to feel them. It's not that I don't want to feel them. It's that I don't know how to. So therefore, right, like the accusation of my ex was you don't want to feel I'm like, no, I don't know how. Yeah. And it's painful. Not that we ever had that like enlightened a conversation, but it, it's, it's in that territory. And the, what I wanted to say was everything is a practice. Whatever you do on a daily basis, that's your practice. That's what you're training to do. If you play violin every day, you will get good at violin. If you train at watching porn and avoiding your feelings, you will get good at watching yeah. porn and avoiding your feelings. If you train at feeling into your heart, you will feel into your heart. And so I remember how in that practice that I told you about with John uh, over Zoom, like I really felt my heart for the first time as a physical yeah. presence in my body. Or again, I wanna say for the first time yeah. since I was 22. Right. And now three years later, I can feel about I can feel my heart in about eight different subdivisions. I can feel the front. I can feel the back. I can feel the top. I can feel the bottom. I can feel the top right sometimes, right? That, that there's, there's nuance there mm. that, that moves over time. And all of that is a result of practice. Yeah. 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 Just as you were saying that, I was just, I was just kind of imagining you, this guy who, you know, his wife and therapist and everybody's like, what do you feel? What do you feel? And it's like, I don't know. And then just in that moment of holding space with another man and that, I, you know, that eye contact and this feeling that just kind of burst open that had to be like, just scary, crazy, wonderful, all those things at one time. Yeah, it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are you working on right now? I have so much on my plate right now, and it's all really exciting. Uh, though I do, uh, I texted my girlfriend that I feel like I'm a guy on a tennis court facing 
12 ball machines that are throwing balls at me all at the same mm -hmm. time. Uh, but it, look, I'm very, very lucky. Uh, I'm a Hollywood TV writer and I have two projects in development there, including a Liam Neeson show at Netflix and another show at Peacock. And I'm very excited about them. What will happen with them over the next little while? Nobody knows. Like they could become serious, they could become hits, they could die. This mm -hmm. is the life of a Hollywood writer. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really, I've built a pretty good business over the last year, running 108 minutes on the weekends and coaching guys privately. I am reducing the amount of men that I coach right now just to leave room for the for the Hollywood thing. Sure. Right now, I've just got one spot left open at the moment, and um. Uh, and I'm also developing uh, uh, what, I, what I'm really excited about is uh, developing a, a, a sort of a writing container for people in the space of the work that, that we are in, be it spirituality, consciousness, embodiment, yoga, et cetera. And this is for men and women. Uh, I recently had somebody tell me that the design on my website and the design in my email blast and stuff like that and Instagram is terrible. And the truth is, I'm a highly linguistic guy. I'm not mm. a highly visual guy. Mm. And um, and so I'm aware that my writing about this stuff is good, but my visuals are terrible. And so I'm going to hire somebody to help me with my visuals. And I'm in the process of doing that. Uh, and it's my experience looking out there in the world that certain people like David Data are phenomenal on the page at describing this stuff. Their transmissions come through crystal clear. Robert Glover, another one, mm. incredibly good. However, there are a lot of people in this space who are beautiful at talking, but when they uh, sit down to write, something comes over them where they suddenly get stiff or stilted or weird in the way that they talk on the page. So... I'm, uh, you know, I'm looking at people who have newsletters or are working toward a book uh, or uh, are constantly posting on Instagram, not just a video, but something that they want people to read. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they're interested in really making sure that they're coming across the way they think they're coming across, uh, I can help them with that. I've been doing this for a long time. So. Yeah. Yeah. In TV, we write other voices all the time. So. Great. I, I'm not telling people how they should write. I'm telling people, here's how to clarify your voice. Gotcha. Great. Great. So how would people find you? Uh, I have a website, which is terribly designed, apparently, uh, called workingdeep.com. And you can find me on Instagram at workingdeep. Yeah. Great. And I'll put a link down in the description so guys can uh, can find you and and that. And, and do you, did, have you worked out any details on the writing thing? Because I know you just, you sort of announced that this morning on Instagram and I was like, hell oh, yeah, that's what I wanted. I want in. Um, I appreciate that. I appreciate <laughs> it. It's gotten a lot of really great response. I'm very excited about it. I, I'm yeah. going to need to figure out um, uh, what my capacity is. I think I'm, yeah. I think I'm going to take just a few really clients that I know I can help. I am mm -hmm. not in this for, I don't know what this post is, but like I, I personally am a little bit against scalability. Like I want to work one-on-one -on -one with, with a guy who's, or a woman in this case, who is all in. Um, uh, so yes, I have worked out the details. They are as follows. There is an initial thing available to anybody, which is an assessment. Send me up to 2000 words of writing that you do. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I will essentially give you uh, some feedback on whether what you're trying to say sounds like you and comes across naturalistically, trustably, authentically. And I think there may be a pain point here that I'm still trying to, I'm, I'm going to draft it right yeah. here with you, is I think a lot of people don't know whether their writing is good or not. So yes. the value added in this assessment is, yes, you're good, or no, you're not. You need some work, some really trustable truth, right? Like I have a clear vision on whether writing is communicating what it says it is or not. And I don't sense that many people do. And I have the experience of people in this field who I know to be great practitioners mm -hmm. whose writing does not sound like them and diminishes authenticity and trustability and impact. And then, so the second step is at the end of the assessment, I'm either like, you're good, don't worry about it, or 
come into a four session boot camp. Mm-hmm. And boot camp suggests a group thing, but I mean it one on one. But I mean like really intense. Like I'm going to take you through your paces on your writing and make you do some exercises and give you some assignments and give you like alternate ways to say things. And the result is I'm going to give you a toolkit bespoke to you that counteracts your habits that make you untrustable. So that when you start to see them in your writing, you will replace them with something speed says sounds more like you. And you end up with something that should serve you well into the future to be able to write in a reliable way. Mm. I want to say this is the opposite of what AI will do for you. AI is trained on a multitude of voices. If you want to sound like a multitude of voices, go have AI write for you. If you want to sound like you, come to me. Mm, Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And I think that that is probably, here's the thing I'm, I, I told you I'm, I'm working on a book right now and it's yeah, in the, I like kind it of in the finishing stages, read it. <laughs> but at, at, and as a creative, as a writer, sometimes you get so close to things that like, it, it's sure. like, I don't even know if this makes sense to anybody. Um, but at the end of the day, what I want, and I think probably what everybody wants is I just want it to be honest. Right. You know, and I don't, you, you can't get that with AI. You can't get that honesty, um, with it. And so I love that you're doing that and that you're helping guys or in women as well. In this, in this but, offering, yes. The, whoever yeah. is working in this space of, because these truths are hard to communicate actually. Right. What we do is hard to put into words. It's why I think David, I think Kendra Kunoff is a, another beautiful example of a great writer. Um, uh, they're hard to put into words and we tend to get stilted when we get on the page in language, right? Like here in this conversation, you're beautifully articulate. And mm. I can imagine you're probably a pretty good writer too. But I've seen people who are not, even though yeah. this conversation is good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we're, we're coming up on time. Before we go, um, any Hollywood stories that... Uh... <laughs> oh, let me see. I did on the summer I turned pretty, which is the most recent show that's actually been on the air. I've been working on shows since, but nothing's come to air yet. Mm. Uh, I had a really great time working on that show and I got to have my first on-camera appearance. And the reason is this, the show, for those who haven't seen it, if, if, if Chuck Chapman's audience is like middle-aged guys (laughs) for, for, for the summer I turned pretty, which is uh, very female skewing and teens yeah. and moms watch it. But it's about an Asian American family who spends the summer in like a Cape Cody kind of place. And there's a scene in which the son uh, gets in on this high-end poker uh, game. Uh, and he thinks that he, in the first scene, that he's like one of the guys. And then in the second scene, these sort of like you know, Brahmin New England white guys start making subtle Mm-hmm. like anti anti-asian jokes um and a well-meaning uh background or extras director had cast a diverse group of poker players for the for the scene and they're the speaking parts who were cast who were both white guys but there are supposed to be other people at the table mm-hmm. and i'm on set with my boss who's jenny han the woman who wrote the books and 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 the show and she's pulling out her hair because she's like this scene doesn't work Unless Steven, the character, is the only non-white guy in the room. Mm. And she's literally like pulling out her hair and she's what do I do? What do I do? And like her eyes like swing to me and she goes, you go in. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm on camera. Uh, the first time I got to act since I was in college. <laughs> Which episode is that? <laughs> it's the fifth episode of the first season. The scene took three hours to shoot. One one second of um of airtime. Deeply proud. That's great. To be the racist poker dealer in a show that I helped write. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, funny. I was uh, you know, doing some research for this uh you know, interview with you and I was looking up, you know, your name Speedweed and Law and Order and that kind of thing. There's somebody, I don't know if you've seen this, maybe maybe you have. I don't know if you've ever Googled yourself. But somebody has a tattoo that says 
co-produced speed, speed weed. It's like a, like a real, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a chain, there's a line of hats and yeah. Yeah. So when you come up in the business, you start as a as a, a staff writer and a story writer, story um, editor, executive story editor. Right, writers run TV, and we have this like whole ranking system. Hmm. Your first couple of years, you're in the end credits, and when you hmm. graduate to co-producer, that's the lowest level writer who who gets um, a front credit. You get okay. credited at the beginning of the show. Nobody reads the end credits, so nobody yeah. paid attention. And I was on Law and Order SVU when I became a co-producer. And on the same sequence of credits that included Dick Wolf yeah. and Speed Weed, yeah. people went crazy. Like I was an internet meme for a long time there. Just yeah. <laughs> and you can buy baseball caps yeah. and say co-producer Speed Weed. I'm a much higher level now. I'm an executive producer or co-executive producer. Uh -huh. But uh, yeah, it's a, uh, Speed is a nickname my parents gave me the day I was born. Always used it. Uh, I grew up in New York where weed is not really a word for pot. Oh, That's much more uh -huh. a California West Coast thing. Yeah. So the drug associations of my name, I had to tell my parents about them when I found out in high school. And then, uh, yeah. no. um, I will say it's been a good name to have. It's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a touchstone of open-mindedness. Mm. When I meet people and they're like, wow, that's a cool name. I'm like, oh, you're an open-minded person. That's cool. But every now and then I'll meet a person who's like, Really? Your parents named you that? I'm like, wow, you just told me something about you. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, thanks so much, Speed, for for being available and just sharing with your open heart. And I uh, love our conversations. And and so you guys that that are that are watching this right now, I'm going to put links in the description where you can get a hold of Speed. Um, and uh his his website and his embodiment practices if you don't have an embodiment practice or if you don't even know what that means and you want to find out i would highly recommend checking out the 108 minutes um embodiment thing i've like speed said i've done it a few times i wish you could do it more saturday mornings for me sometimes uh filled with some other um commitments that i have but when i'm able to go i always enjoy it in fact this last time I moved some things around because I was just feeling this um, heaviness and it's like, I need, and then your invitation came out. It's like, oh, I'm moving, I'm moving my Saturday so that I can go to that because I just needed that. So, all right. That's what I got for today. Thank you so much, Chuck. We'll see you. Thanks. All right. Bye, brother.